0: The next morning, I reached the ward before the student high arrived. Sarah was propped up in bed with a pillow. "Sara," Hey, I said, surprised and thrilled to see her looking better. Sara giggled from one side of her face and showed me a foil packet. She screwed her face to one side, using the stronger side of her face to suck from the sachet. A girl who looked about four lay propped on pillows in the next bed. She copied Sarah, screwing up her face to suck from her own sachet as if that were part of the procedure. Mindano, what is it? I asked, only to make conversation. I actually knew it was plumpy nut paste. Both girls held their packets up to show me again and both had the brown paste smeared across lips and teeth. Yatafetal, is it delicious? I asked, but they were giggling too much to answer. Sara's chest heaved up and down and she laughed until she got enough breath to say, oh, yes. The tiny girl in the next bed squeaked as if she couldn't hold it in any more. The Ferengi can speak Amharic. She rolled over to bury her giggles in the pillow. Sara flopped back in her pillow and wheezed a one-sided laugh. It was too hard not to giggle as well. Hainok arrived to start physio. Wow, she's better, he said. When Hainok pulled back Sara's bedclothes, he pointed to her left leg, the one that was not paralysed, but looked just as thin. Can you move this one? She shrugged is ishi? Try, okay, Hainok said. Sara slowly slid her left foot along the bed towards her bottom. Her whole leg quivered with the effort, but she managed. With encouragement, Hainok helped her to bend and straighten her leg ten times. Now with this one. Hainok indicated the leg affected by the stroke. Imbi be It doesn't want to go, Sarah whispered. Hainok knelt and inched his hands beneath her paralysed leg. He cradled her heel with her hand and her thigh with another, so they were just millimetres off the bed. Ahun, now, he said. Sarah screwed her face up with the effort of trying to move her leg, but it remained static.
1: Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis and today we're joined by Julie Sprigg talking about her debut book, Small Steps, which covers her time working as a physiotherapist and educator in Ethiopia during a time of great civil unrest in the country. Julie, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Max. It's lovely to be here.
1: So how did the idea of writing a book based on your time as a physiotherapist in Ethiopia come about and what led to that being published?
0: So the idea of writing a book evolved from the group emails that I used to send home while I was working in Ethiopia and people's interests in them. So while I was away, I started sending group emails home to my family and a few friends. And then... um, the emails got lengthier and lengthier and they ended up becoming um quite descriptive about the work I was doing and the kids I was seeing and um then more friends of friends and friends of family started to ask to join the email list as well so I ended up having a huge email list and I noticed how it was always the children's stories that resonated with people Mm. and I used to get lots of emails back asking me more about my work as a pediatric physio and um And the questions were always related to the stories of the kids and how they were progressing. In the first drafts of the book, I just had the stories of the children and I kept myself out of the story. But then in subsequent drafts, I started to get the sense that it needed to have my story weaving the children's stories together. So I started looking back over my journal entries and the shape of the book really started to emerge. As I realised in my journal entries, I kept returning to very similar themes And those themes seemed worthy of exploring. So those themes eventually became the manuscript. And so my journey to publication um, did involve a couple of rejections. So I, I submitted to a couple of publishing houses without success, as is often the case for many authors. And then in 2018, I submitted the manuscript to the City of Fremantle Hungerford Award. And although I didn't win the award, I was um, offered a publishing contract as a result of um, the shortlisting process. Yes, so I was offered the contract in late 2018 and um, the book's coming out in August 2020.
1: That's excellent. And so you mentioned the the email chains that kind of set off the book. Uh, and when you were actually going through the drafting process of writing the book, did you have any other notes or journals or other mementos that you went back to to revisit this time in your life?
0: Yes, I did. It was all written from my journal entries at that time and from the emails that I sent home. And, um I'd saved a lot of newspaper articles and clippings as well when I completed the first draft in two thousand and eight to two thousand and ten for that two year period it was obviously much closer to the time hmm. so if there was anything that I hadn't recorded in my journal. I was able to remember it. So my memory was much fresher then. And I did have fairly extensive journals. So while I was away, I did keep a travel journal as I had on all my other travels. So initially it started out as a travel journal, writing about nice scenery I'd seen and interesting things. But then as I got more involved in my work, it became a way of sort of um, offloading or sort of processing my day at work. So I wrote every night and every morning. So I ended up having about 250,000 words of journal entries by the time I got back to Australia. Yeah, it was massive. My issue was actually not that I didn't have enough to spark my memory. The issue was that I had way too much content to sift through and decide what to leave out of the book. And perhaps fortuitously, the email connections were so poor that during the time of political turmoil, if I wanted to go online and read any articles about what was happening, I'd have to... um, cut and paste the article into a Word document just in case the email would drop out and then I would save those newspaper articles to my laptop and then um, that was really handy actually in this, um, the final editing process as the book was nearing publication when I had to cross-check dates and that sort of thing mm. because I had um, sort of an archive of um, online newspaper articles at that time and in relation to how it felt to revisiting that time in my life that was a bit tricky so looking back on my journal entries and seeing what I'd written I was torn in two ways that I kept seeing things that I wanted to put back into the book and then I also um, felt a bit of nostalgia remembering all the fun that we used to have and mm. the good times we had but then um, because towards the end of my there I started to feel quite sad and despondent some of my journal entries are really uncomfortable to read and I did feel um, quite a bit of compassion for my younger self and the, the hard time that I was going through.
1: Yeah, and that kind of ties together the, the handful of narratives that are running through the novel. There's your actual work as a physiotherapist helping the children of Ethiopia, and then there's the personal story of your adjustment to living in Ethiopia coming from your life uh, in Australia, and then there's also the political turmoil that you mentioned. How did you go about balancing all of these themes in the course of the book?
0: Yes, it, it was really challenging to balance all those themes And uh, that is why my initial draft was about 80,000 words longer than the um, book that you see in front of you today. And it is partly why it took such a long time to write. So the first layer was the the story of the kids. And I already knew that people were really interested in the story of physiotherapy and the kids. But I felt that I couldn't leave out that bigger issue, which was my journey from idealism to understanding the complexities of the issues around me. and then. Um, the next layer sort of was that I couldn't have written about that dawning awareness of complexity without writing about the political turmoil because the The complexity of the socioeconomic conditions were intrinsically linked with that political turmoil and the volatility of the um, people's response to undemocratic election processes. And um, then the effect of civil unrest and um, how that diverts resources from health and education and upends people's lives. So the narratives all seemed quite interwoven and they did all seem like multifaceted elements of the same thing. The way that I managed it actually was I ended up doing quite a bit of storyboarding so mapping out the um the character arc mapping out the timelines of the um the political turmoil and mapping out the timelines of the children and where they were and their progress against those timelines and as i said before i had just so much content so it was really tricky to work out what to include or what not to include but eventually the guiding principle became what drove the narrative so I felt like there was scope to include much more of the political turmoil and the history behind that. But then in the end, if it didn't drive the narrative, um, I chose not to include it in the book.
1: Mm. And part of that all being linked, you talk about in the afterword of the book, the tension between not contributing to the stereotypical depiction of Ethiopia as a country of poverty and famine, but also staying true to the genuine issues that the country has. Could you elaborate a bit on that tension and how you sort of sought to resolve that in the book?
0: So while I was writing the book, I did have foremost in my mind how Ethiopia, Ethiopia is perceived in Australia. And so the simple narrative that many Australians have in Ethiopia is largely shaped by the famines in the 1980s and the attention that was brought to that by Bob Geldof and Live Aid. And I have to say, before I went to Ethiopia, that was my um, pretty much my own only understanding of Ethiopia as well. When I was shaping this into a story about awakening to the complexities and the intractable nature of global inequality, I was then torn that um, I wanted to share this story of awakening, but at the same time, was I then falling into a trap that um, so many others? had already. But then, so then I was torn because I knew that people had already expressed interest in physiotherapy for kids in under-resourced settings. So then I had thought that probably those kind of people would be interested in what it looks like up close to see global inequality and how that plays out. I really struggled with how to represent these human faces of injustice. And how to represent that as an injustice rather than positioning those kids in the story and their families as um, sort of objects of pity and and that sort of power dynamic of me writing from a place of wealth and white privilege and the other as in the poor African Mm -hmm. children. The way that um, I ended up finding that was the best way to do that was to really focus on my stories, to focus that these were my experiences And um, these experiences were influenced by the work I was doing. And the work that I was doing was focused on a fairly specific cohort. So, initially, working in a clinic in the poorest, one of the poorest suburbs of the capital city of one of the world's poorest countries. The people that I was seeing there were, um, their socioeconomic conditions were challenging. I tried to make that a reflection of my work and not. definitive story about Ethiopia or Mm -hmm. that this is what the entire country is like and so the first part of the book is set in that clinic in Addis Ababa in the capital and then the the major part of the story is set in the um, government hospital in Gondar where I was teaching in the university as well and most of the patients who use that government service were subsistence farmers. I I wanted to write about the fact that keeping in mind this larger narrative but also the fact that there are injustices, there are farmers that have to choose between staying in hospital and getting life-saving treatment for their child or returning to their farm to um, make sure that their other children have enough to eat. I, I kind of felt like people who are interested in reading that story will probably be interested to know that there are people in these situations and um, have the opportunity to reflect on their own privilege.
1: In that vein, both during your time in Ethiopia and in the writing of the book, were you wary of the kind of colonial narratives that tend to be associated with foreign aid?
0: Yes. So that um, uh, that is something that I was hyper aware of from a colonial perspective. Less so in Ethiopia because Ethiopia is um, very proud of the fact that it it, um, was one of the, or pretty much the only African nation to resist colonisation by the Europeans. So um, uh, there was not so much of a colonial narrative, but there definitely was the white saviour narrative. And like we talked about before, Bob Geldof and Live Aid and that sort of positioning of... Ethiopia as being such a um, major recipient of world aid. Because I was so steeped in left-wing politics before I went to Ethiopia and then I write about it at the start of the book and I was already reading a lot of post-colonial theory and Marxist literary theory, I I was already aware of the white saviour narrative. I found it quite easy to avoid that narrative while I was in Ethiopia because I had a circle of like-minded friends Mm. and um, I was quite – politically outspoken. So I think that anybody who liked that white saviour narrative wouldn't have wanted to be my friend because I, would have, I was banging on about yeah. banging on about it all the time. So from a, that perspective, that was fine. But then when I returned to Australia and I wrote up the book, then um, I had that um, as very loud inner critic the whole time I was writing. I guess I was helped that when I returned to Australia, I worked for an international NGO, which is a non-government organisation, And that um, organisation only provided funding to local organisations or partner organisations in developing countries to carry out programs there. So I was surrounded by people that were very much about how we can use um, skills and resources and access finances for people on the ground to make changes in their own community. I already had that sort of awareness of perhaps how best to present that information. When I wrote the book, I was really, really I tried to be really hyper vigilant about any of that white saviour narrative that might have inadvertently come through, and then I was really lucky to have an editor who was completely on the same page and proofreader who, who had um, really eagle eyes for anything that might have slipped through, and then the marketing team that were really uh, helpful in presenting the book in the way that I wanted it to be presented. It does still remain a bit of a concern for me that at a, um, sort of a cursory glance, that this book might appear as a white saviour narrative. But I hope that if anybody would read it, they would see that that questioning, that sort of focus on skills where I was there as a young person um, sharing my skills as a mm. physiotherapist, which is something which um, physiotherapists do in Australia. I tried to emphasise that angle there, and I hope that, um, especially as readers get to the end of the book and see that I, I didn't I didn't achieve any salvation at all, <laughs> that 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 white saviour narrative is sort of minimised.
1: You mentioned the the political turmoil that was going on during your time as a physiotherapist as well. The causes of this political turmoil you weren't really aware of at the time. Now, with the benefit of hindsight and the research that you would have undertaken for the book, are you able to explain a little bit about what was happening while you were in Ethiopia?
0: So the the context to that is that I hadn't read much of Ethiopia's history before I left, mm. and I did, um, I did have some history books available to me while I was over there. While I was there for the 2005 elections, the elections themselves were relatively uneventful uh, until the incumbent government started announcing successes and then the opposition complained of rigged voting and intimidation and we had sort of I heard stories about pre-filled ballot boxes and we also heard sort of stories in the workplace of people reporting their relatives were so. The outcome of that was that the election results were then delayed by a few months while they were investigated by a government um, body. But because of the a three month delay in a, announcing the results, there were rising tensions in the street and also the sort of perceived, um, perhaps impartiality of the in, the investigation into the irregular voting. So. Um, students started to protest and then the leader of the opposition and many members of the opposition party were placed under house arrest and then police started shooting at protesters in the streets. So while I was there, there was a day when 40 protesters were shot by the police and um, university dorms suffered arson attacks and this was all just so um, overwhelming for me. And the major thing that I didn't understand at the time and which I've tried to explore a bit in the narrative, is that these elections happened 10 years after the first democratic elections that were held in Ethiopia. Prior to that, there was the dictator Mengistu Haile Mariam, who was in power for 14 years. And prior to that, there had been the emperor Haile Selassie. So the idea of free and fair elections was relatively new to Ethiopia. Mm. So if you think about it, 10 years is a really short time to uh, perfect the democratic process. Coming from Australia, where we take democratic elections as a complete given, it was difficult for me to wrap my head around how irregularities could happen, and also the perhaps the weight of people's emotional response to some of those perceived irregularities. Yes, I don't know that there have there have been any definitive answers on whether those um, irregularities were ever substantiated or not, but. Um, there was certainly such an upheaval of the country, and lots and lots of young men were taken to um, without charge and detained um, because of risk of being political dissidents. All of this was um, was a really important part of my um, gaining an understanding about the complexity of the world 's problems and how there just aren 't any simple solutions when when that 's the context that mm. um, things are happening in. Mm
1: and one of the other uh difficulties uh in your job as a physiotherapist is at the university the amount of red tape and bureaucracy involved with simple seemingly simple things like hiring a bus or getting your paycheck they are turned into quite lengthy journeys from your perspective do you have any thoughts as to why it was so difficult to get things like that done
0: well i actually i really don't know and at the time i was so um steeped in just wading my way through bureaucracy that mm. I didn't stop to give it any thought as to why it might have been like that. Now that I work in state government in Australia, I can see that this is what bureaucracy is like and there are multiple layers of authentication and those layers should act as safeguards. And it seems like in Ethiopia that it had um, taken that to a, another extreme. The Ethiopia is a uh, does have socialist foundations. So I guess that highly centralised socialist administration style of government was there at the time that I was in Ethiopia there weren't computers used so in the hospital they didn't have computerized salary systems so it was all paper-based you had government employees that were paid incredibly low salaries so very difficult to maintain motivation if your monthly salary doesn't really even cover the cost of living and then we had people who were used to having telephone and electricity services being very sporadic. So very much more realistic expectations about how long things could take and less of a sense of urgency that we as forensics um, might have. And so with the the case of the transport manager with hiring the bus, I've reflected on this. So The people who haven't read the book, we tried to organise a a bus to transport the students to and from their clinical placements. But every week when we turned up, the manager had a different excuse why we couldn't hire the bus. If we came on a Monday, he said, should have booked it on a Tuesday. If we came on a Tuesday, he said, no, too late, you should have come on a Monday. So every week there was uh, something different. And it was only as I was writing the book with the benefit of hindsight that I wondered, oh, I wondered if he was expecting some kind of financial supplement in order for him to carry out his job properly, but nobody at the time mentioned it. None of my colleagues mentioned it. On reflection, with his very low government salary and perhaps a family to support, and if he was um, looking and seeing that there was a physio department that had quite a few foreign lecturers, um, perhaps he thought it was reasonable to expect some kind of something which may make it easier for him to fulfil his duties. Mm. But again, absolute speculation.
1: Early in the book you talked about how it was a childhood dream of yours to make a difference with those less fortunate and knowing what you know now about where that journey would take you, if you could talk to your younger self, do you have any advice that you would give them?
0: Yes. I think probably the best advice I'd give to my younger self would be to be very gentle on myself. Mm. And to accept when things don't turn out exactly as I'd hoped they would. So at the start of the book, I write about that I was seeking to find my place in the world and I was looking to reconcile my own lucky and safe life in Perth with the injustices that I'd seen around me. But when I set off on my journey, I didn't take into account any of my own resilience and the limits on my resilience. Hmm. So I didn't put in place any of the necessary safeguards. I didn't have any training in culture shock or what to expect. I I blithely set off and then came crashing down because it's really challenging to be confronted with um, experiences which are so beyond everyday life is in Australia. I think that that would be the advice that I would give is just to ride out the storm. Um, Sometimes it's okay not to be as strong or as resilient as we had hoped we might be. Sometimes we don't live up to our own expectations, but that's okay. That is a a part of getting older and I guess, looking back on life as well.
1: And we heard a bit of your um, Amharic at the beginning with the excerpt. And I was curious before we finished up, if you have a particularly favorite phrase.
0: Ah, well, there is a phrase actually. It often comes into my mind, but I don't say it out loud because that that might be that'd be a bit weird for mm-hmm. people who don't speak Amharic. <laughs> but the, the phrase is actually "izush" or for that's for a, a female and Izo for a man. It appeared to have multiple uses. So um, often my colleagues and my students would translate it as take it easy. But I don't know that we would have an English speaker would translate it that way. So it seemed to be that you could use it for never mind or relax or everything's going to be fine mm. it was kind of a um a, a soothing and kind of reassuring phrase so sometimes when everything you know having a bad day things are wrong, it just pops into my mind because it's been such a long time that i was since i was in ethiopia i don't very often have words slip out in amharic it used to happen much more frequently when i was um when i just returned but yes Izush is um is the word that immediately springs to mind
1: Mm, it's kind of like the ethiopian version of no worries i guess kind of like a catch-all
0: yeah exactly and it's always um a a word of reassurance Mm. and comfort which i i guess is why it's stayed with me for so
1: long well julie thank you so much for joining us today
0: oh it's been a pleasure max